Hello, and welcome to Cause of Death. My name is Jackie Moranti. I've been studying infectious disease for 14 years in various research settings. I have a Bachelor's of Science from Colorado State University in Microbiology, Immunology, and Virology. I've worked with diseases like tuberculosis, SARS-1, and SARS-CoV-2, better known as COVID-19, and I've worked with EHV-1. It's my feeling that if we look back at the pandemics of the past, we may be able to better handle the pandemics of the future. The problem is, we have to learn our lessons first. Come along with me while I tell you about the pandemics, the epidemics, and the outbreaks, and how we never seem to learn our lesson. Hey, this show is about murder, and I tend to drop some bad words now and then. Listen at your own discretion. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. Welcome to Beyond the Rainbow, true crimes of the LGBTQ+. I'm your host, the goddess of rainbow glitter, CJ. Not much to report here on the coast of Oregon. It's been cold and wet, but it looks like we're going to have a few days rain-free. Yay! I don't mind the rain so much, but it definitely puts a damper on my being able to get my steps in. I also think it makes my dog Nilla depressed because she loves to go outside. I don't have a fenced-in yard, so I can't leave her outside. Plus, she's only 5 pounds, so I'd worry about leaving her outside even if I did have an enclosure for her. Hawks, owls, offspring, my big turkeys, anything really could carry her off. I used to think I'd hate living in a place that didn't have a fenced-in yard, but here it's kinda cool because the wild turkeys visit often and deer walk through my yard. I once had a raccoon, but I don't see him anymore. I have a couple of possum that give me the creeps, but I still feed them. I swear I'm freaking Snow White. Find me on the socials as Rainbow Crimes, Beyond the Rainbow, and Darkcast Network. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. At the unicorn level, I'll name a unicorn I house here at my Seabreeze Studio stables in your honor. You get an early release of episodes, add free episodes, free goodies if you send me your mailing address, and at the end of every month when money is tight and you're out of everything, here I come with a brand new episode called a Patreon exclusive episode, not shared here on the regular show. It's a win-win transaction! If Patreon is just too much to figure out, I do have a Buy Me A Coffee account under Rainbow Crimes. I admit it, I'm a coffee whore. So if you want to support but you're not sure how, those are some of the ways. Or tell a friend about the show. A five-star review is another way to help others find the show. Whatever you do, I appreciate it. Thank you. You are personally invited to join me in August at the True Crime Paranormal Festival in Austin, Texas. And I hope to meet some of my warriors at this event. You can get your tickets by going online to the True Crime Paranormal Festival website and type in B-E-Y-O-N-D, BEYOND, at checkout for a 15% discount. And I believe that's all the housekeeping for now. On with our story. Now, what woman's history month would be complete without a wrongful conviction story? In this one, 
it's pretty bad. She was only 17 years old, still exploring who she was. She was young enough to be giddy over something she hadn't experienced before, and she was old enough and responsible enough to maintain a part-time job while going to school. She had her life ripped away from her before she was even an adult, but I'm going to let her tell you a little more about herself in her own words. This is from the site freeindiaspellman.org. Who am I? My name is India Spellman, and I am an innocent young lady that spent over a decade in SCI Cambridge Springs. This is for a crime I did not commit, or have any involvement in whatsoever. I've been sentenced to a lifetime behind bars. To be frank, I've spent my entire adult life behind bars, and I'll never get those years back. I know that everyone claims they're innocent, but I truly am innocent. And the facts of this case will prove that legally and factually, I am innocent. On August 18, 2010, about a month after my 17th birthday, I was in my house with my father and grandfather, checking my Facebook page and talking on my cell phone. Unbeknownst to me, while I was in my house, someone was committing a robbery that led to the death of someone. Two days later, on August 20, 2010, after receiving my check from Dunkin' Donuts where I was employed, I had gone home to get ready to go to the mall. While I was upstairs getting ready to leave, I was called downstairs by my grandfather. Upon my arrival in the living room, I came face to face with police and detectives. These strange men asked me to have a seat on the couch, and they asked me if I knew the reason for their visit. I answered that I did not know what they were there for, and they told my grandfather that they were taking me to the police station to question me. No one ever told me I was under arrest. I just thought that I was going to the police station to answer some questions. Little did I know that they would be taking me to the homicide department. This is when my life as I knew it would be no more. I sat in the interrogation room for hours in silence crying, trying to figure out what was going on and why I was there. Then a detective came in and started to ask me, did I know why I was there? And again, I told him no. I did not know why I was there. I was repeatedly told that I was a liar and that I knew exactly what I was there for. The more he hollered at me, the more I cried and asked for my parents. I was told my parents had left and went home. I kept telling the detective I had no idea what they were speaking about. The detective left, and a few minutes later, Detective Pitts came into the room. His demeanor was totally different than the previous detective. Detective Pitts was extremely hostile and abusive. I was hit in the mouth, and he called me a liar. He said that I robbed and killed a man. By this time, I was hysterical and terrified. I was being accused of robbery and, even worse, murder. All I wanted was for my parents to come and get me and take me home. I was a 17-year-old law-abiding citizen. I'd never been in any kind of trouble with the law. I was a young woman with goals, dreams, aspirations. I had plans to go to college and play basketball and possibly go into the WNBA. I was extremely passionate about basketball. My hopes and dreams were crushed before they even had a chance to manifest. 
My dreams were snatched away and shattered in a blink of an eye. I was never given a fair chance to prove my innocence. All I want is for the facts to be reviewed and justice given on the merits of the facts. Well, warriors, it would seem this teenage black lesbian was being set up to take the fall for some very serious crimes that went down in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But how does this happen? What evidence did the police even have to bring India in for questioning, let alone hold her without her parents present, feed on her, and then arrest her? At 17, India was still considered a child by everyone, except for the Philadelphia police. So let me introduce you to the crime India allegedly committed. It was the afternoon of August 18, 2010. Navy World War II veteran, 87-year-old George Greaves, was outside in his front yard. He had just mowed his lawn. He was approached by a young black boy and a young black girl wearing a Muslim-type dress. The two young people had a gun and they held it on George in attempts to rob him. George wasn't having it, though. He pushed the young people away from him, and that's when one of the teenagers put the gun into George's chest and they fired, killing George. The teens ran off, and they were seen by several witnesses who rushed to George's aid. Those witnesses also called emergency services after the teens fled. Not only was George a World War II veteran, he was part of the Navy's elite Seabees organization. He was a former bodybuilder, and now that he was in his golden years, he was an avid fisherman. He also had a home in the mountains that he would use as a retreat in the winter so he could go ski. At 87 years old, George was still a very active man. George's friends knew him simply as Bud. The boy allegedly was 14-year-old Vaughn Combs. It was learned later after bringing Vaughn in for questioning that teens had robbed others, including a woman named Shirley Phillips, right before they got to George's home. Shirley was approached on the street with the teen's gun aimed at her. As the teens told her to give them her valuables, she quickly handed over her things and she ran, escaping the dastardly duo and sparing her life. Vaughn, at 14, was most likely frightened, but he named India Spellman as his accomplice. Here's where India being at those crime scenes becomes a problem. While the crimes were being committed, India was at home with her dad and her grandfather. She was on her computer playing on the social networks, and she was talking on her cell phone. Both her dad and grandpa could verify her whereabouts that day, and during the times the crimes were being committed. As well, her phone could verify it, and her computer. But we'll get back to that as we get into India's trial. You heard in India's words what transpired for her two days after the crime and murder of George Bud Greaves. Without her parents present, without an attorney present, 17-year-old India was told if she signed the paper Detective Pitts placed in front of her, she could go home and it would all be over. India asked Pitts if he would read the paper to her as there were words she didn't quite understand, but he refused. After being physically coerced into signing a confession, India was arrested and booked for murder, 
and a series of felony robberies. Now this really gets under my skin. In the state of Pennsylvania, police are allowed to legally question a minor without their parents or legal aid present, as long as the minor is not in custody. That's just not right. A minor who is being questioned is not going to have the wherewithal to ask for an attorney, something most of us adults, especially if we listen or watch true crime shows, we would know to do that, guilty or not. Detective Pitts is not an outstanding police officer. He has been known to perjure himself in a court of law, forcing the false confession of a black man who was said to have robbed a jewelry store. The man, Obina Onia, he served 11 years before being exonerated from the crime. Pitts, who really is the Pitts, by the way, lied to cover his ass for assaulting his wife. And Detective James Pitts has a reputation for using violent means to get false confessions. He would also physically abuse witnesses to get testimony from them that would support his narrative, just so he could wrap up a case. Sadly, Pitts was still employed by the Philadelphia Police Department until 2022. In 2019, he was transferred to the Delaware Valley Information Center. In spite of his long-ass history of deceit, violent interrogation tactics, and violent behavior in his own personal life. Why, I ask, do we keep shit stains like this around in law enforcement? He's obviously not a good cop. I would like to say, at first I thought these cases Pitts was involved in were racially motivated. But Pitts himself is a black man. Just a shitty detective with anger and power issues. And oddly enough, I started to watch a movie, an old movie, with Sean Connery and Lawrence Fishburne last night. It's called Just Cause. Lawrence Fishburne plays a sheriff, I believe, or some kind of cop. And he's just as bad as Pitts. I'm wondering if Lawrence Fishburne's character is based on Detective Pitts. But finally some justice would happen in regards to Pitts. The beginning of 2022, he was arrested and charged with perjury and obstruction of the law. And I believe that his employment was terminated by the Philadelphia Police Department. Finally! Can't have a cop with a record! It would also seem that while investigating into Pitt's past of inhumane and unorthodox interrogation methods, the prosecutor's office was hiding information about Pitt's shady past. There is some definite corruption in Philadelphia. Come on, Philly, handle your shit! The 14-year-old boy Vaughn Combs, he'd come from a rough life. At the age of four, he witnessed his mother shot and killed. When he was a little older, he was kicked out of his home and left to fend for himself on the streets. For the murder of George Bud Greaves, he was tried as a juvenile. He denied guilt, and he continuously pointed the finger at India being the trigger woman. She was the killer of George, the instigator of the robberies, although he tried to talk her out of them. Vaughn was slapped on his hand for being the lookout, and he received two years for second-degree murder in a juvenile facility. The judge in his case believed he could be rehabilitated, and he could come out a productive member of society. One thing media failed me with on this case, I would really love to know how Vaughn knew India, and why would he implicate her in this crime?
Maybe he knew her from the Dunkin' Donuts. Maybe she knew he lived on the streets and she would give him a free donut here and there. I just don't know. But I do know that terrifying Detective Pitts was also the one to question Vaughn. Going back to our girl India, she was incarcerated in jail from pretty much the moment she stepped foot into that police station. Up until her trial in 2013. That's three years, and she was now being tried as an adult. A neighbor of George's was put on the stand and positively identified India as George's killer, which to me is kind of sketch. She couldn't positively identify India before the trial, but at the trial, India was definitely the culprit. The alleged killer in cohort of Vaughn's was a chunky, light-skinned girl wearing a Muslim dress and a jihad head wrap over her head. India was skinny, dark-skinned, and not Muslim. How could this neighbor positively identify India, especially when the girl was wearing a head wrap? Oh, wait. Detective Pitts got off on abusing witnesses in trials as well as potential suspects just so they would say what he wanted them to. And there's the answer to that question. Defense attorneys for India also did a really shitty job presenting her case. Her father and her grandpa were never asked to testify on her behalf for her alibi. Nor were her phone records placing her home at her computer on Facebook while talking on the phone for 25 minutes the moment the crimes occurred. They never brought that into evidence. And that seems to me to be very important stuff when a 17-year-old is on trial for murder. Perhaps they too were frightened of Detective Pitt's violent tendencies. Or perhaps they were just cocky enough to believe what's supposed to happen within the justice system. It's up to the prosecution to dig up enough evidence to put a perpetrator behind bars and not their job to provide the evidence to prove that their client is definitively not the one that committed the crime. And if that's the case, that's just plain ignorant to rely on the 12 jurors to follow the whole shadow of a doubt rule. At India's trial, the jury came back with a guilty verdict for second-degree murder, robbery, and conspiracy. She was placed into prison where she stayed for 12 years until she was fully exonerated of any crime and released on February 9, 2023. India is 29 years old now. As for former Detective James Pitts, I'm hoping he will spend time incarcerated for his perjury and the cover-up of crimes committed while he was employed to serve and protect the good citizens of Philadelphia. Our true crime quickie this episode comes to us from Nebraska. I haven't picked on Nebraska in a very long time. And to be honest, I truly hate this case. But shit like this does happen sometimes and it just leaves me shaking my head as to why. So here we go. Publicly out lesbian, 33-year-old Charlie Rogers, she played competitive basketball for the University of Nebraska Cornhuskers. She did this when she was younger and attending the university. She was a star player, ranking second in career block shots. One morning around 4 a.m. in July of 2012, Charlie crawled naked from her Lincoln, Nebraska home. She was bloody and she was screaming for help. 
Neighbors heard her, and they came from their houses to find her. One of them called the police. Charlie claimed that three masked men broke into her home and attacked her. One pinned her down on the bed until she could be bound with zip ties and gagged, while the other two carved lesbian slurs onto her body. The word dyke was carved into her forearm, and others were scratched into her chest, abdomen, thighs, and calves. The men then threw gasoline about and tried to light her house on fire. Thankfully, only a portion of the floor burned. This was a definite hate crime. The LGBTQ plus community of Lincoln, Nebraska was up in arms about the attack of one of their own. And they jumped in to support Charlie however they could. There was even a candlelight vigil held in her honor. Charlie spoke that she was forever grateful for all the love and community support that was being given to her. However, as the police started to investigate the alleged crime, they had zero suspects except for one. At the crime scene, Charlie's bed where she said she was attacked was neatly made. There were no traces of any blood on the bedspread that covered the bed. No signs of a struggle appeared anywhere in the home and a box cutter and gloves were found neatly hidden in Charlie's home. Charlie's wounds were presented to experts. The experts said that the wounds were superficial and definitely self-inflicted. Police investigators found the store that the box cutter was purchased at. The cashier was shown a picture lineup and picked Charlie's picture out as the one who purchased the item. Charlie started to speak to media about the doubters of her attack. She said, I'm human, I have feelings, and it hurts that there's people out there who don't believe me. And for people to think that something like this doesn't happen here in Lincoln, Nebraska, it's wrong. It does happen here. It did. Being a victim in this situation, or a survivor in my case, and then having your integrity questioned, it feels like being victimized all over again. But who really were the victims in all of this, Charlie? The community who backed you? The LGBTQ plus supporters? The law enforcement officers and investigators paid for with taxpayer money? Charlie was arrested and taken into custody. She was found guilty of a fraudulent crime report against her, and she had to serve two weeks in jail and have two years probation. To this day, Charlie maintains the attack was real while the evidence just doesn't support her claim at all. And I just can't help it, but that song by Charlie Puth keeps popping into my head as I was writing about this case. You just want attention. Anyway, love you, Rainbow Warriors. You matter. And remember, it's not a crime to be gay. Unless you're a murderer. <laughs>